So, you're all very welcome to the launch of Matters of Great Indifference, Jim O'Brien's second book. Um, uh, very welcome here to the uh, Ogunlow Exchange here in, in the beautiful village of Ogunlow. Um, this, as I think we all know, is Jim's second, uh, second edition, as it were, of Matters of Great Indifference. Um, the first was very much um, his ramblings and his writings drawn from many years. Um, when I say ramblings about Jim's, people tend to laugh. Um, because there were great ramblings, let's face it. There were mighty ramblings, yeah. But, but the rambler... The ra the, ram the Rambler had his, had his, his, his wings clipped, um, like we all did, um, and instead of it being, I suppose, solitary uh, confinement, the second book was written out of COVID confinement. So I guess it was uh, a very interesting uh, challenge for Jim to, to do that as a writer, because, you know, you were, you were taking it from the highways and byways, your inspiration over the years, Jim, so now it was time to go within and to, I suppose, tap into the deep recesses of the memory um, for all those lovely moments. And out of it came the second edition uh, that we're um, about to enjoy. I had uh, a few moments this afternoon. Jim gave me uh, loads of notice here for this and dropped in the book at quarter to seven. Uh, <laughs> so I had great time to go through the book and prepare um, uh, for this. I didn't uh, want to give him too much information. Yeah. <laughs> So um, uh, even, even the, the quick perusal of it, I mean, it's just, it's everything I think we've, we've come to know about Jim O'Brien. Um, it's, it's how it's written, it's the creative writing, the storytelling, um, but it's all those lovely places, I suppose, that many of us have been as well. But I suppose we'd all love to have the ability to talk or write about them like Jim does. Um, I'm not going to do much talking because the job of an MC, I heard it said once, I thought it was a brilliant description for an MC. It's a bit like the corpse at an Irish wake. It's sort of important for the event, but not expected to say a whole lot. <laughs> so um, without further ado, for, for the moment, um, at least, I, I will ask, I will call on Dominic Taylor. And Dominic is from the, the Limerick uh, Writers' Centre, which supported this. And looking at the description of the Limerick Writers' Centre, what really um, uh, I admire from it is they, 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 they look at or they have a belief that writing and publishing should be made available and accessible to all. So for supporting this book and much else, um, we thank you, Dominic, and we call on you to say a few words. Thank you. Eugene. <laughs> And thanks to all of you for coming out here tonight to celebrate the publication of Matters of Great Indifference, Volume 2, by journalist and author uh, Jim O'Brien. As you just said, my name is Dominic Taylor, and I'm the director of the Limerick Writers' Centre and Revival Press. First of all, let me say that Matters of Great Indifference, Volume 2, is the 138th title that we have published since we began our community publishing project in 2009. Since then, we've endeavoured... Thank you very much. That's the first time that was ever applauded. <laughs> um, since then, we have endeavoured to carve out a unique position in relation to literature in Limerick and uh, the North Munster area, I would say. I think, and I think we have successfully brought ideas about books, literature and writing to a wide audience, both locally and nationally. I'm proud that Limerick Writers' Centre are publishers of Matters of Great Indifference by Jim O'Brien. Jim is a fine writer and has learned his trade and learned it well. 
Jim has already had success with volume one of Matters of Great Indifference, and I'm confident that the success will be repeated with volume two. These essays are superbly written, hugely witty, and describe rural life like it is. Like James Herriot's tales from rural Yorkshire, the themes in this book are universal and the writing is delightful. Writing is often more than just a literary exercise. It's about bringing people together and sharing, where the inner life of the writer and the reader can converge, and where something can happen that forces us to think or act differently. As remarked last night by Dara McCullough of the RTE programme Ear to the Ground, <clears throat> at the official launch in Kildimo, Jim's native place, his weekly column in the Farming Independent has become something of a pulpit for Jim, where each week he delivers a secular sermon which has become a must-read. <laughs> if that is so, then Matters of Great Indifference, Volume 2, must be a Bible for everyday living. I urge you to read it and enjoy. And I'd like to congratulate Jim on the publication of his book and I wish him well in his writing career. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Um, it is written in, in chronological order, and it starts with a lovely um, piece around when tractors were Porsches. Um, now, I, I've, I've admired so much about Jim O'Brien over the years, but I never realised that they had Porsches. Porsches in the yard, they might have had porches, uh, but they had porches in the yard in Kildimo. Not one, but two at one stage. And I can only imagine um, Jim going to school as a young lad, telling his friends in Limerick, yeah, we have two porches. So we've a very special guest, obviously, with us here tonight to launch the book. Um, uh, I would have always have, and still do associate her as MEP, uh, Marion Harkin. Of course, uh, she is Deputy Marion Harkin. Um, she served as an MEP for 15 years, uh, from 2004 to 2019 for the Connacht Ulster region. Uh, this was after running uh, for a European Parliament first in 1999. Now, I emphasise that it was just three years after she was widowed and had two young kids, but had a particular calling, I think, uh, that really um, makes her perfectly aligned and compatible with what this community is about, which is working for others, you know, working for communities. And that was... Um, that was a calling that, that was always going to be answered. Um, a native of Tubbercurry um, in County Sligo, uh, they had a grocery and a travelling shop. Now, I'm not quite sure what the travelling shop is, but we'll, we'll get around to that piece, but I have a fair idea. 25 years um, uh, she worked at the Mercy College in Sligo as a maths teacher. She moved to Manor Hamilton in Leitrim in 1984 with her husband, Sean, and two young kids. Uh, just a few short years before Sean passed away. And it was at that stage, I think, it's fair to say that the flame for her um, rural uh, uh, development work, her, um, her entire political career and her, her social calling was lit. She got involved in a number of projects there, the North Leitrim Glens uh, Development Association, and she was pivotal, pivotal in, the, um, in the creation of the Western Development Commission, which has indeed Clare as part of its remit. So before you go back home, I'm sure there'll be, there'll be a few more applications landing, Marion. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, as somebody who is, I think, a really good fit uh, for tonight for all sorts of reasons, and I suppose an illustration as to what tonight means to her and her desire to be here is that she comes from Sligo, and in the Ireland that we live in, that we'd love to all change, everything, all roads and rail, goes to Dublin. 
So Marion went from Sligo to Dublin and Dublin down to Clare to be here tonight. So Marion, thank you very much for joining us. Please take the stage and give what will no doubt be a due tribute to Jim and his work. Thank you. Well, as they say, folly that. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, it's just, sorry, I'll just pull this out. It's lovely to be here. And as Eugene said, I travelled to Organolo from Sligo via Longford, Dublin, Port Arlington, Thurles, Limerick, courtesy of Irn Rodern. But now normally I would have driven, but I still had half a book to read and much <laughs> writing to do. No more than Eugene. Jim didn't exactly give me a lot of notice. Now, I got more than 10 minutes, I think 10 days. But of course, me and a few others in Leinster House uh, have this feeling that we have to run the country in the meantime. At least that's what we think anyway. So I hadn't as much time to read the book as I would have liked. But as Jim writes a few words for me, I thought I'd scribble a few for him. So he texted me as the train left Drummond. And for those of you who don't know where Drummond is, it's in County Leitrim between Carrick and Shannon and Longford. And I told him the book would be read by the time I got to Mullingar. Now, in Longford, a lady sat in beside me. <laughs> and she seemed anxious to chat. And she told me she was taking the train to Mullingar for a few hours, as she said, to get out of herself. Because although her mother and father are dead 10 years, she said she always misses them at this time of year. So we spoke for a while, but by the time the train pulled out of Edgardstown, I was reading and taking notes furiously. And after a few minutes, she looked over at me and she said, you must be doing a degree. <laughs> and I smiled and explained that what I was literally doing was in fact a matter of great <laughs> indifference. <laughs> now this actually is my first point of disagreement with our esteemed author. Many of the matters in this book are not matters of great indifference, but matters of great importance. But Jim, I suspect, even for a Limerick man, wears his accomplishments lightly. And indeed, that's no bad example for all of us. Indeed, it was a quote from his mother within the pages of this book who nailed it for me when she said, if twas high up, she got me. Twas low down, she left me. So Jim, my job tonight is to elevate you a little. But the good news is, my job is easy. But before we get to the nice bits, and I promise they are on the way, I have to raise another area of disagreement. When I read the phrase, the current consort. I was mildly irritated. You know the way women can be mildly irritated. 
But as I made my way through the stories, I realised that while he is never gushing, he uses that term, the current consort, with real endearment and occasionally accompanied by mild irritation. <laughs> but you can tell he is smiling every time he writes it. So, Jim, I'm not sure if the current consort forgives you, but I do. <laughs> so I'm nearly ready for the good stuff in the book. But first, a bit of good stuff about Jim. The person who did my PR passed on to that eternal press room in the sky earlier this year. And I was looking for some other unfortunate to take on the job. Now, I know Jim's brother Declan well, and I share his views on agriculture, so I thought, well, that's not a bad start. Now, I didn't know Jim personally, but I knew who he was, of course. Now, the fact that he worked for Moraid McGuinness when we both chased the same seats in the same European constituency did not give him a head start. <laughs> but in, fa no in fact, <laughs> we were both elected. So I don't know whether you were good or bad. <laughs> Still, he had one big plus. He went to school with my brothers in Castle Marcher in Cork, and he was in the same class as my brother Michal, who was in fact my director of elections. And when I asked his opinion last May, he said, ah, he said, the great James O'Brien. Now, to some of you, that might sound impressive, <laughs> but as the oldest of eight and having five younger brothers, I know that that really is just the way that middle-aged men who were school friends often greet one another. <laughs> it's a sort of reflected greatness, if you like. So, like Shania Twain, that didn't impress me much. <laughs> but it was my brother Thomas now living in Sydney, when we have these long phone calls, and I mentioned Jim O'Brien, and he said to me, oh yes, he was a few years ahead of me, but he was nice to the younger ones. Yeah, he said, he was a real nice fella. And I thought to myself, the kind of person that I'd like to work with me is someone who is nice to people he doesn't need to be nice to. And after that, Jim, I forgot about Mairead McGuinness. <laughs> and I barely looked at your CV. <laughs> so the reason we are all here, the book. Now, for me, the bottom line with any book is, did I enjoy reading this book? This collection of stories, observations, musings, I won't call it ramblings, snapshots in place and in time. Did it draw me in? Did I like the writing? Did I admire the writing? Did I laugh out loud sometimes? Did I reflect for a moment? Did I see small wonders? And did I smile at human foibles? Did what was written here touch me at times? 
and did it entertain me? And the answer to all of those questions are yes, 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 and yes. In this book, Jim deals with topics ranging from the Civil War to turf cutting, from the Garth Brooks concert to the heartbreak in Krishla, and from climate change to the need to sometimes civilize certain men, himself being the prime example. In this book, Jim can be found speeding through America, where he was arrested and jailed in Cobb County in the southern state of Georgia. And watching the recent House and Senate elections, he finally forgave the people of Cobb County when it was announced they had voted Democrat. Now, at times he says he lives close to the edge, in his head anyway. And he recounts when in leaving search, he and some fellow lawbreakers were to be found drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes in the kitchen of Castle Martyr Boarding School. Now, all, any of you like myself who attended boarding school will know that not only was this out of bounds, it was out of the question, and there was only one punishment, expulsion. So maybe there's a little bit of a risk taker there. Now, Jim in this book gives us a glimpse of life here in Ogunala, its musicals, the beating heart of its community, and of course, the local credit union. He tells us it's celebrating its 50th anniversary and praises, as I do, from my heart, the risk takers who started it. He tells us that in that 50 years, over 107 million has passed in and out of its loan book, transforming the lives of people <coughs> along the way. And given the hammer to crack a nut roll of the central bank since the 2008 crash, I agree 100% with you, Jim, when you say, aren't the credit union members lucky? The risk takers had their job done before the central bank arrived with its box ticking on compliance and risk management. Long live the credit union, I say. Now, some of the writing in this book is just so delicate and so elegant. And because I can't improve on that, I just want to quote a few words from the last piece that's here, Our Hearts Are in Krishla. Our hearts have been in Krishla for a week or more. We are them, and they are us, in our common fragility, in our bone china lives, beautiful and exquisite, but closer than we like to think to being smithereened into a thousand pieces. The girl who went in for the ice cream was the daughter of all of us. Our sister and our nephew stood in the queue at the post office. It was our wife behind the till. It was our brother at the ATM. We know them all. We are them all. What happened in Krishna brought us to the edge of what it is 
to have a life that can be lost in an instant. He goes on to tell us about the community and how it springs into action. But Jim, as often he does, digs a bit deeper. He says, talking of the community, we all know the people who do these things. They're always to be depended on, to be at the heart of whatever collective action when it's needed. People who have the contacts and the phone numbers to get things moving. But there is also the man who doesn't get out much and isn't one for hugs and kisses, who will stand all night in the rain in a high-vis jacket directing people into parking places. He might mutter something about it being bad owl weather and a sad owl thing that happened. But otherwise, he keeps his counsel and does his loving his own way. Another place that Jim took us to in this book was to an uneasy place, to the time of our civil war. And with your sharp eye and sure-footed insight, you describe some of its aftermath in a gut-wrenching manner. And it's entitled An Uneasy Peace. It is as if a great family celebration is forever tainted by an unspeakable tragedy. After almost eight centuries of waiting for the Spanish, the Stuarts, and the French to liberate us, we had eventually done it ourselves. What an achievement that was. But the joy was sucked out of the moment and the vacuum filled with hate, death, destruction, and long memories. He goes on to say, the war never finished. It ground to a halt, and in its wake, a form of life emerged, laden with silent recrimination, little reconciliation, and no peace. Like someone recovering from trauma, the simple business of keeping body and soul together took all our energy. Once the guns were put away, both sides took refuge in the rigid certainty of the church and took cover beneath the conservative, middle-class preoccupations of the new government. These accommodations left us in a state of cultural and economic stasis for the most of 50 years. He reminds us that we all live with the unfinished business around the birth of a nation. He says a lot more, but you'll have to read this yourselves. Sometimes, Jim, your writing is just damn clever. Where, for example, you manage to weave some of the words of Garth Brooks' own songs to describe your trip to see the richest cowboy in Dublin. The current consort wasn't available to travel, as you tell us, thanks to a prior engagement in the cause of high art. She had no time for hanging out with friends in low places. (laughs) And staying with the first line of the same song, which is, for those of you who know it, going back to my roots, 
I showed up in boots. You deftly turned it around to describe your journey home. As you and your friend, all togged out in your cowboy regalia, sped southwest, it was time you said to take off our boots and go back to our roots. Clever stuff, Jim. And yes, Jim, you brought us back to our roots at a time when a car with a bad battery would be left on an incline ready for a hill start. (laughs) And indeed, um, you're throwing caution to the winds recently, you said, when you got a paycheck. I wonder where that came from. (laughs) So you threw caution to the winds and you filled the car with diesel right to the top. And you said it probably doubled the value of the car. (laughs) Well, well, you may laugh, but it reminded me of a time when my late husband would only put 10 shillings worth of petrol into the car on our way to a dance. Because if the car broke down, he said, the petrol would be worth more than the car. (laughs) You brought us to a time when Eddie Mackin lifted the nation on Boomerang, and Harvey Smith was everyone's favourite Englishman until Jack Charlton arrived. In all of this, Jim, you deftly keep the wheels turning. But before I finish, I want to give you one piece of advice and raise one cause for concern. (laughs) Despite the fact that you have, shall we say, a varied political history. I would stay away from the Greens if I were you. (laughs) Or at least from giving them the advice you publish on page 153, where you tell... And the reason you do this is because of your aversion to hard physical work, i.e. saving and footing turf. (laughs) So you tell the unsuspecting Greens... Banning the saving of turf should guarantee the Greens a lorry load of rural seats in every election. (laughs) At least until the experience is erased from the cultural memory of most country people. Jim, it's easy known you weren't born west of the Shannon. And I'm with the lady from the Midlands on this one when she said to you, what do you know about turf? (laughs) And my slight concern was raised when I read about your hankering to live close to the edge, your simmering impulsiveness, where you describe the high tension of a bidding war at a virtual land auction, and your finger is hovering, tempted to click, and put in a daft bid on a piece of random property. And we know the only person who stops that. But when I also read in another story about what you did with the hot poker, an audience You'll have to read the book to find out that yourselves. But it sort of unsettled me. So now I realise 
I'll have to read the press releases you send me <laughs> a little more carefully. Just in case there's a political incendiary device <laughs> nestling between the semicolons. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, there are no incendiary devices lurking in here. There's warmth, wit, and quite a bit of wisdom. You'll meet new faces, and you'll run into characters you have known all your lives. You'll learn new words, even I did, and you'll remember old ones. You can dip in and out without affecting the rhythm of the book, because each story is a small work of art in itself. You'll be charmed, and at times, you will be challenged. But you'll be glad you bought this book. And like me, you will be delighted that you know the author. I was looking for just one word to describe Jim O'Brien, and I came up with the word storyteller. But then I realized I needed to great storyteller. I'm so pleased to launch this book. Yay. A fellow should die more often <laughs> and go to his own way. Um, I'm delighted to be here in Ogunlo to launch um, this book. My notes are all over the place because the book fell under the car when I came out of it. So um, if you, if you think, find me looking for the going out entrance, you'll know what happened. Um, I suppose... Uh, is Dokagor Kurter on Lower Shofwilon Hyol Gokde Mort? I suppose it's launched every Tuesday uh, in some Nurtan Shin uh, on Farming Independent. Ach nach das Unrude, Gwil Kush Kalura Agin Igoni. You know, I know it's launched every Tuesday in the, in the Farming Independent, but it's great to have an excuse to celebrate. And sure, any excuse is a good excuse. It reminds me of a, a friend of mine. Um, who was uh, Jack Lillis is his name, and his mother Patsy and all the Lillises were at a function last night in Kildimo where we launched this for the first time. And um, he, Patsy and my mother and father and Jack and myself went to a pub at the Ferry Bridge in Kildimo one night. And we had a great night. We sang songs and we drank a few pints. And we were come, came out afterwards and Patsy says, we'll have to do this again, she because when you think of all those fine young men who died for Ireland, wouldn't they be turning in their graves if they thought we weren't enjoying it after all their trouble? <laughs> so why should you launch a book once when you can well, launch it twice or three times? Um, so I suppose this book is volume two. The first book was published in uh, 2020 at the height of the COVID uh, crisis and at the height of a lockdown. And at that time, we had all kinds of virtual launches. We set out 
Uh, we sent out all kinds of WhatsApp messages. I revived my presence on Facebook and used the parish newsletter, parish notes, carrier pigeons and smoke signals to spread the word. And we got a great reaction. We had many people coming, great sales, and uh, great sales in shops like O'Mahony's in Limerick, and we had them here in Maria Bands, up in Scarif, in the Forge, and in um, uh, and in in Heaney's there in the Costcutter. So we had a great, uh, and, and and it did very well. But my one memory is of uh, the doorbell ringing, and people appearing at the door with a mask on looking for a book and they'd put the money on one windowsill and I'd have the book on the other and they'd take the mo- they'd leave the money and they'd take the book and that's the way we sold most of the books when you think back on it it's quite surreal so this time we decided to go mad entirely and not only have one launch but to have two of them and so uh, it was great to be here tonight to have the second one here in Ogunalo. Um I suppose last night I was at home in my own place and we had a great night a uh, great night with family and friends, uh, and it was like one big trip down memory lane. And I suppose tonight it's great to be here in Ogunlo in my adopted home, um, because all Irish uh, rural communities are carbon copies of one another. And uh, I launch it here tonight among the people I write probably most about now the people I meet every day, the people I see every day, the people I see around me all the time. And I suppose it's hard every time you sit down at a, a blank screen, and I didn't realise how much Louise uh, looks on, but she said she sees me sitting there. Because we now kind of work more communally, and we got a dog that means we have to all stay in the same place, because if she's left alone for five minutes, she could destroy the family jewels. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but anyway, so it can be a bit of a struggle week in, week out, and Louise said, sitting there looking at me, looking at a blank screen. But, but something always strikes me, because life goes on and things are always happening all around us. There could be big things or small things. Uh, like I said, there could be the, the arrival of a new dog or the departure of a queen. And anything and everything um, can be uh, in- included. So there's inspiration everywhere. Um, just before I, I, I want to read one or two pieces, I know, I'm conscious some people are standing, so I don't want to break your backs, but lads, our, our women, if you want to seat, take a seat. And also, my wife is the time, timekeeper, so when I see a certain look, I'll know when to shut up. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I want to say thanks very much to the Irish Independent, and especially the Farming Independent, and to my editor, Margaret Donnelly, who actually tolerates what I write every week. Uh, she tells me she gets more grief from the people who do the crossword underneath it than she gets from my piece. <laughs> now, whether that's damning with faint praise, I don't know. Um, but I just say thanks for allowing me to publish uh, those. I also want to, I have a very good sub-editor, Sam Wheeler. Sam is uh, a great fan of the column and loves it, but he also pulls no punches when I get my metaphors mixed up or when there are misspellings or typos. And I can do, I can have had some clangers, and he has saved my blushes on more than one occasion. I remember one time writing authoritatively about dinosaurs, and I described a particular dinosaur as Thesaurus Rex. So... (laughs) so he was, thank God, for, thank God for Sam Wheeler. Um, 
So uh, I want to thank in a special way uh, Dominic Taylor of the, Limerick, uh, Dom of the Limerick Writer Centre. I saw Dominic's work in a book published by a friend of mine, Father Mia Hollislin, a few months ago. And also, the last book was pu purchased, God forgive us, through Jeff Bezos. And I think Jeff isn't short of a few pounds. And um, so it was great to publish this book in, with, uh, with an organisation that, uh, that works cooperative, cooperatively, creatively, and keeps everything local. And they do powerful work. So thanks to the Limerick Writer Centre. Thank you, Dominic. Um, and I think we sign, sealed and deliver it with the minimum of fuss. And there was little enough drama in the whole thing. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank Donal O'Keefe and the Design Factory for the designing the cover of the book. The cover is, uh, and I wanted to talk to Mike Mack before I actually, uh, I actually published this. It's t I was up once one Sunday morning went up the old road there and I was up over the cliff and there's an abandoned house up there and it's just been cleared and I took a photograph out over the lake and this uh, tree stood out there whose farm is it stood I think David Sheedy has been clearing it up there yeah yeah so it was taken up there anyway so that and uh, he did a lovely job on that um, I want to thank my good and my good wife uh, Louise, um, who is the current consort, uh, <laughs> and is currently staying around. Thankfully, um, I suppose uh, Louise is the first one to read the column every week, and I'll always know from the reaction whether it's working or not. If she hands it back to me and says that's grand, <laughs> I know I might as well be shoving it into my ear as publishing it, and. But if she giggles halfway through it or uh, smiles and say, that's a good column. I know I'm on the pig's back and, my, and my, my week's work is done. But not only that, I mean, she prepared most of uh, what's happening here tonight. And uh, I'm just amazed constantly at the competence and the depth and the gorgeousness of the woman. So. She also manages the money. <laughs> so I won't ever know how much we made on this book, but I'll certainly know if we don't make money on it. <laughs> um, I want to thank uh, my good friend Eugene Hogan and my sparring partner. Uh, myself and Eugene have been uh, soldiering together creatively, I suppose, uh, for since we arrived here. It started one day, we were kicking stones outside the church after Mass, and we said we have to do something about uh, 1916. And we did something, and I think it worked. And ever since then, we've been doing uh, kind of mad things together. And I suppose our motto was taken from a friend of mine who says, there are too many people doing sensible things. So, um, so thank you, Eugene, and thank you for your gorgeous works, uh, words tonight. And so I suppose I come to Marion Harkin. I work for Marion. And, um, and it's a joy and a challenge to work for such a good woman. I suppose I know her through her brothers. Uh, we were together in Castle Martyr. Uh, it's down in Cars, now a very luxury hotel. In that time, it was uh, a focus of uh, teenage starvation. Um, <laughs> because you know anybody who has teenage children, or especially teenage sons, they spend most of their lives with their head in the fridge. So you can imagine having a, more than 100 of them and no fridge anywhere near them. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I got to know, and Michal, her brother, was in my class, and um, we got on very well. Marion Harkin is a good woman. She's everything you would want in a political 
in a politician. She's hardworking, she's honest, she sticks to detail. I will never take on anything she would not be able to bring to conclusion. She's not a promiser, she's a deliverer. In political discourse, she seeks the truth. She pursues what is right. She's pas passionate about equal opportunity for people and for regions. And she devotes herself entirely to the common good. Above all else, she believes in taking on the issue, not the person. From the Taoiseach Michal Martin to Jackie Healy Ray, no politician has anything to fear for her, from her on a personal level. But they had better know their stuff and better do what they say they're going to do. But personally, they have nothing to fear for her, from her because she takes on the issue and she doesn't let go. Um, I am, above all, you know, I'm deeply grateful to her for, for launching this here tonight. But above all, I would have to say that um, a sign of her integrity and her attention to detail. I said to her and I asked her to launch the book and she said, I don't know if I'll have time to read it, I'm very busy. I said, Marion, all you need to do, I'll tell you what bits to read. <laughs> and I'll, I'll point you in the direction. And she said, Jim O'Brien, I'm not launching a book I haven't read. And so that was, and she could have taken the shortcut and she didn't. And she's also uh, a very busy woman at the moment because not just politically, but her mother is quite ill. And they're taking turns to mind her mother in Sligo. So I am deeply grateful that you have taken a full day out of your life to come down here and do this. So Marion, thank you very much. Um, also, the thing about Marion, working for Marion, because she is excellent, she makes you excel. And whenever you do anything for, for Marion, you ask yourself, could I have done better? Because she does the best. And even at 64 years of age, when you think you're gone beyond apprenticeship, excellence and the apprenticeship in excellence lasts forever. And when you have a mistress or a master, <laughs> <laughs> In the, in, in the right sense, Mary. Uh, <laughs> when you have somebody that you work for whose uh, whole life is the pursuit of excellence, it brings the best out of you, I hope. So thank you, Marion. Um, and I want just to thank her for her gorgeous few words. I, I won't keep you too long. Um, if, if, do you want me to read a piece? Or, uh, I'm going to read... Uh, that's fishing. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so thanks a million. Good night, sir. Um, uh, I suppose, uh, I, in fairness to Marion, I'll read one about, uh, about Castle Martyr um, and about uh, a friend of mine. He was there last night and he has, he has, threatened, to, um, he has threatened to sue me about what I said. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to find it here now. I had it. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Ah, here it is, 106. Um, anyway, I drank my first cup of coffee during a late night and illicit visit to the kitchen in the college where I was boarded. My friend and companion on the mission was a lad from the far west who believed rules and regulations were made to be flouted. He was in search of coffee, which he found on one of the shelves in the shape of a jar of Maxwell House. 
Turning his attention to the aga, he lifted the lid on one of the giant rings and moved the massive kettle into place. This will be boiled in a minute, O'Brien. Will I make you coffee? I've never tasted the stuff, I answered. I'm not sure I'd like it. Well, it's about time you tried it, he said. I can't let you out into the world without having tasted coffee. They'll say you've no class. <laughs> Sit down there and I'll make you one. He treated the kitchen like it was his own. Do you take sugar in tea, he asked. I do, I replied. Then you'll take sugar in coffee. <laughs> he handed me my cup of the steaming liquid and the first of about 50,000 I've drank ever since. I began to gulp it down, afraid we might be nabbed by a prowling dean. However, my friends settled himself, at, settled himself at the end of the kitchen table, ready to enjoy his brew at a leisurely pace. Come on, I said, drink up and let's go, we'll be caught. What's your rush? he asked. They'll hardly throw us out now, we were in leaving cert. With that, he took out a packet of cigarettes <laughs> and a lighter. This was taking things to a new level entirely. Smoking in the college was absolutely forbidden. To be found out of bounds in the kitchen was one thing, but to be found out of bounds drinking staff coffee and smoking fags was like driving up to a Garda checkpoint with a bottle of beer in your hand and a cannabis plant on your lap. <laughs> Settle down, O'Brien, he said. You can't have coffee without a fag. They're the perfect combination. I should add that a few months uh, that, that a few months previously, the same friend bought me my first drink, the beginning of another lifelong loving relationship. <laughs> he had me well ready for the world by the time we left our bride's head of the South. As the years have gone by, coffee has developed a culture of its own, wrapping an aura of sophistication around itself. White-shirted baristas are to be found in every town, brewing the beverage in a variety of concoctions, using beans grown in exotic places and tailored to tantalise every taste bud and palate. Nowadays, there are more snobs to be found in a coffee shop than at a wine-sniffing. They're the kind of people who will only drink coffee brewed from organic beans grown by Trappist monks in the mountains of Colombia. In the meantime, tea has come to resemble the dilapidated big house outside the village where the waistcoats are threadbare, the silver is tarnished, and heedless dogs have the run of the place. In the kitchen, the fragile occupants sit as close to the aga as they can, taking tea in chipped china paid for with old money that's long gone. The cup of tea is in danger of becoming another relic of old decency. But I reckon it is making a comeback. Tea is elbowing its way up the social ladder and set to, be, to resume its rightful place as the empress of beverages. In some places, even the old tea leaves are back in fashion, regarded as more environmentally friendly as, than tea bags. A man I once knew liked his tea brewed from tea leaves and poured through a little strainer he placed on the rim of the cup. He referred to this as his contraceptive device. Yes, tea has survived the lean times, and why shouldn't it? Among other, thing, among other things, it has formidable friends. I remember hearing a story about two women from West Limerick who had come to the city on their monthly shopping trip. Before catching the half-past-four bus home, the pair bustled into a fancy coffee shop near the bus stop. As they sat down, arranging their shopping bags around their feet, the gentleman of the house approached, or the gentleman of the house. What can I get you, ladies? he asked. We'll have tea for two and scones, please, one of them replied. The man sniffed the air and said, 
we don't serve that sort of thing here. The, the women stood up, gathered their shopping bags, and as they prepared to leave, one of them turned to their erstwhile host, looked him in the eye and said, Mark my words, you'll serve tea yet. <laughs> there is nothing like a West Limerick woman to put you in your place. I, uh, how are we for time, Mrs? Okay, right. Um, all right, I have... Um, pardon? Okay. Um, <laughs> don't tell him about that. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, we'll do, I'll do two bits. Um, I'll do a serious one. I was going to read Chrysler, but Chrysler has been referred to, so I, I, I won't do that. I suppose as a fa father of daughters, I want to do 129. Um, okay. While I write this, a beautiful, talented, lovely, and loved young woman lies dead in Tullamore. As a parent, I can only imagine that the pain of her family must have the weight of eternity. A father of daughters, I am only too aware of how vulnerable they are in a world where might may not be right, but often wields the upper hand. They are even more conscious of this and will often phone and stay on the phone while walking from one place to another, particularly in the evening or at night. I was born into a man's world. Aside from teachers and nuns, the only women in positions of power and influence were in India's Indira Gandhi, Israel's Golda Meir, and at a later stage, Maggie Thatcher. All the serious players in the world were in black suits, aside from the Dalai Lama and the Pope. In the world of farming, be they in wellies or suits, at the boardroom or on the tractor, men occupied and continue to occupy the seats closest to the levers of power. I went to an all-male boarding school, a place I remember fondly. However, in hindsight, it was not good for us young males to spend seven months of each of these formative years in an all-male environment. Women and girls, almost by virtue of their absence, were viewed through the prism of extended pubescence, were viewed as exotic, rare creatures to be wooed and won, or as objects of more base desires. Then I went on to another all-male environment, a seminary, and from there into a church where gender imbalance is no accident of history, but a clear and present policy, close as makes no difference to an article of faith. I want to be careful not to blame these institutions for my male ills. I have to take personal responsibility. All I know is I had a lot to learn when, when I emerged from them. My use of the word emerged might lead you to believe I was locked away and sheltered from the world, but I wasn't. I was very much at the heart of life, accompanying people through the ecstasies and agonies that go with being a human being on the planet. Ironically, one of the spiritual goals was to be in the world, but not of the world. This often found people like me floating around in a parallel universe. I most certainly emerged as a man that needed a lot of work done. When I met my wife, I would say one of the first things she had to do was civilise me. In writing this, I do not want to cast aspersions on my former colleagues. The vast majority were and are the gentlest and most lovely of men. I'm talking for myself. Whatever it was about me, 
the years in predominantly male environments left me incomplete. Fate decided I needed to be taken in hand, and it gifted me with a family of women, who, I'm sad to admit, have to continue their mother's work of reformation and transformation. <laughs> this occasionally means eyeballing me to explain in simple terms how the world is different for women, and often not that pleasant at all. The reality of modern men, while it is much changed from that experienced by our fathers and forefathers, still has strong residues of what went before. Millennia of misogynism and sexism do not disappear over a few decades. They are deeply embedded in the fibres of our culture. Even among men who might regard themselves as sophisticated, sane and urbane, there are strong traces of the sins of our forefathers. These find expressions in the nods, winks and nudges that still go on between men when women are out of sight, out of earshot, and even when they are not. Potent traces are to be found in men's social media traffic, in our emails, in the things we receive and forward. While these might be regarded as a bit of crack, they stir up the residue of something deeper and more sinister, something that has not gone away, you know. Once stirred up, it can cre create the conditions for rotten things to happen. Like every father who loves his daughters, the murder of Ashling Murphy has made me face the volatile nature of the world they live in. It has also made me ask myself how I, as a man, in thought, word or deed, contribute to this volatility and to the persistence of a culture where some men conclude they have a license to kill. And I'll finish in a, a lighter note. You'll be happy to know. It's called Rumblings in My Gastronomic Memory. Every now and again, a cry goes up urging us to go back to basics, a move trumpeted as the antidote to everything that ails us. I must confess to a recent longing to taste some of the basic foodstuffs I remember from my young life. Simple things like buttered scones, jam and brown sauce, not all in the same dish, I might add. <laughs> These are among the tastes that graced my palate as a youngster. When I was growing up, mealtimes were the metronome that maintained the rhythm of the day. All things were scheduled around breakfast, dinner, the four o'clock, and supper. There, was all, there were also minor break times. In some households, mid-morning was marked by what posh people called elevenses, whereas many rural house, homesteads regarded the four o'clock as sacrosanct. On farms with a dairy herd, the afternoon collation was the important one, being the last bit bite or sup they got, one got until the cows were milked. The four o'clock was the original rural takeaway, transported from the kitchen to wherever the work was happening. Delivering the repast was the job of those not quite old enough to pike hay, sow spuds, drive a tractor or operate a chainsaw. Prior to being press-ganged into the world of real men's work, one had to serve one's time in the mobile catering department, hauling the four o'clock to the meadow. The light afternoon meal generally consisted of tea and homemade scone, scones or scones, lathered in butter and topped off with jam. Sometimes there might be a few buttered slices of spotted dog, a type of soda bread with spec speckled with raisins. In some houses, this was known as spotted dick, a name that for obvious reasons fell out of favor. The fair could also include fruitcake or barnbrack, depending on the time of year. The tea was carried in whiskey bottles snuggled into thick woolen socks and corked with wedges of tightly rolled newspapers. 
The scones and cakes were on a large dinner plate draped in a tea towel. It was no small feat for a pair of bony youngsters in short pants to carry all that food and drink, plus a few mugs, from one end of the farm to the other. There were no internal farm roads or sleek electric fences at that time. One had to haul the assortment of refreshments across cattle-poached fields and over stone walls, thick with profusions of briars and nettles on either side. To add to the challenge, those of us selected for the fodder party were often late leaving the house, and our mother would send us off with the injunction, if ye fall, don't wait to get up. <laughs> to sustain us on our odyssey to the outer regions of the land, on occasion we found it necessary to commandeer some of the fair meant for men. <laughs> of them men. Depending on how far we were from our destination, there could be more than one raid mounted on the plate of goodies. We often arrived at our rendezvous with full bellies and, much depleted, and a much depleted store of supplies. When my father and grandfather would see the meagre pickings remaining on the plate, one of them would ask, does your mother think tis a pair of snipes she's feeding? <laughs> we would try not to hiccup. So what, to, what took me on this journey back through the decades? Well, I was in the supermarket during the week, and as I passed an array of baked goods, my attention was drawn to a basket of scones. Although wrapped individually in cellophane, they looked delicious. Something rumbled deep in my gastronomic memory as I imagined one of them sliced in half, covered in butter and jam, and smiling up at me. As if possessed by some external force, I picked up a pair of the soft brown mounds of gorgeousness and made straight for the shelves containing the condiments and preserves. I quickly selected a pot of strawberry jam. Still in a state of possession, as I passed a shelf lined with sauces and spices from Bangalore to Ballymaloo, my, my nostalgia-stricken eyes spotted a simple bottle of Chef Brown sauce. <laughs> Remembering there was some cold beef in the fridge, the ultimate supper began to take shape in my mind. Sliced tomatoes, a few slices of the current consort's brown bread, slivers of beef, and a spoonful of brown sauce on the side. What more could a country boy ask for? Such feasting. With the scones and jam, I had the makings of the classic four o'clock. A few short hours later, the cold beef and brown sauce would make for the perfect supper. Grabbing the bottle of Chef by the neck, I deposited it in the ba basket with the rest of my retro fare and headed for the checkout in full mid-20th century mode. I almost expected to pay for it in shillings and pence. <laughs> When I got home and set my purchases down on the kitchen table, the current consort looked at them, looked at me, and wondered if I had become stuck in existential reverse. <laughs> the next thing you'll be wearing short pants, she said. <laughs> you wish, I replied. <laughs> Put on the kettle, my little cowslip. <laughs> We're going back to basics.